This free program is paid for by the listeners of Redwood Community Radio. If you're not already a member, please think of joining us. Thank you. Supporting your community radio station. This Saturday, May 19th, is Household Hazardous Waste Collection Day. It's from 9 a.m. until 2 p.m. Households can bring up to 15 gallons or 125 pounds to the Caltrans Maintenance Yard in Garberville. Materials accepted include wet paint, auto and garden products, cleaners, aerosols, medical sharps, and a red biohazard box, and up to 10 fluorescents and 3 HIDS. No electronics or appliances, please. More info is available at 441-2005. And it's time for Ask Your Herb Doctor. Welcome to this month's Ask Your Herb Doctor. My name's Andrew Murray. My name's Sarah Johannesson Murray. For those of you who perhaps have never listened to our shows, which run every third Friday of the month from 7 till 8 p.m., we're both licensed medical herbalists who trained in England and graduated there with a degree in herbal medicine. We run a clinic in Garberville where we consult with clients about a wide range of conditions and recommend herbal medicines and dietary advice. You're listening to Ask Your Herb Doctor on KMUD Garberville 91.1 FM and from 730 until the end of the show at 8 o'clock, you're invited to call in with any questions, either related or unrelated, to this month's subject of genetics versus environmental predisposition to disease. So the number here, if you live in the area, is 923-3911, or if you live outside the area, the toll-free number is 1-800-KMUD-RAD. That's 1-800-568-3723. Once again, we're very pleased to have Dr. Ray Pete on the uh, show tonight. And from 7.30 on, people are invited to call in with any questions uh, related to this show. So, Dr. P, are you with us? Yes, I am. Okay, thanks so much for joining the show again. Um, I know we get requests uh, fairly frequently from people who've listened to the show and very much enjoy what your uh, opinion is and your uh, scientific research is on some uh, fairly static ideas in science and uh, several months ago we were, we weren't on air last month but uh, I think it was in March the beginning of March a, uh, a listener sent us an email uh, very much uh, appreciated your take on things and also had a suggestion a few suggestions without being bold he just gave a few suggestions for things that he'd really like to hear your opinions on and uh, they pretty much conform with uh, tonight's uh, subject so first of all um, for those people who perhaps have never heard uh, you, Dr. Pete, would you just uh, briefly outline your academic career? Um, I uh, got a Ph.D. in biology, University of Oregon, 1972, uh, but I had been reading 
in biology uh, since the late 1940s and uh, avoided academic study uh, because uh, I saw that uh, strange things were happening that didn't seem at all scientific to me. Uh, even as a kid, uh, uh, it was uh, very clear that uh, political doctrines were influencing uh, biological uh, theories. Okay, um, I've just very briefly been uh, been told by the uh, <laughs> the studio director, we'll call him, <laughs> that uh, all views and opinions expressed on this show are those of the speaker, not necessarily those of the radio station. I think that's how it goes, isn't it? <laughs> Good. Okay. So thanks so much, Dr. Pete, for letting people know what your academic background is. Um, later on, uh, we'll let people know how they can contact you through your website and or ask advice further later on the program. So on to the question of the uh, fairly dogmatic, entrenched view that genes, our genes control everything. They control us and we are at the mercy of our genes and uh, to one degree or another, if we are genetically predisposed to a disease, that's it. Our, our future siblings, etc., etc., will um, be doomed, <laughs> for want of a better word. I know the, uh, the, the article that um, I wanted to uh, discuss with you, and I want your opinion on the current, uh, the current model versus very alternative, but very scientifically founded alternative uh, ways of looking at uh, biology and cells in particular. How um, how you see the uh, see the role of genes versus the environment? How you uh, the um, the federal government is really involved in in the issue of. I I was sort of horrified when I discovered that. Uh, the National Library of Medicine, I think it is, maintains an online version of a, a book called Mendelian Inheritance in Man. Mm-hmm. Uh, I bought a copy for 50 cents <clears throat> at a used book store just for the humor of it because it, it's just totally absurd stuff basing uh, genetic determinism of a disease on uh, two cases, for example, uh, a single family is enough to uh, uh, prove to the author of that book that uh, there was a genetic determinism involved, uh, neglecting the possibility that both people in the family were exposed to the same chemical toxin, for example, mm-hmm. uh, or the same diet or whatever. Uh, and uh, just about the time I was... Uh, starting to uh, read biology uh, was when uh, the government was starting to get involved in uh, uh, helping the dogmatists uh, uh, control uh, biological teaching. Uh, uh, Someone that I got acquainted with when he was very old, Carl Lindegren, wrote a book called Cold War in Biology uh, that uh, explained how how the change took place in the 1940s, and uh, people who didn't conform to the uh, dogma weren't allowed to teach even in high schools. Uh, so that it, it was a, 
a very totalitarian uh, institution mm -hmm. uh, uh, with the government's involvement as a funding agency. Uh, and um, the, the science journals uh, being influenced by the, the pharmaceutical industry, for example, right. uh, were big factors in, in uh, outlawing the teaching of alternative views of inheritance. The uh, first half of the 20th century, uh, the uh, embryological view of development and inheritance uh, was developing uh, the definition of, of how the um, single cell becomes an adult and it, it does this uh, by proceeding through many stages of uh, different organizations and the, the guiding principle for the first 50 years of the century uh, was that uh, a field was involved, a gradient field of chemicals or of electrical forces or uh, 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 even uh, uh, other physical uh, forces were assumed to be involved, but the, they could uh, demonstrate that there was a field effect in the sense that uh, if you uh, removed a part the um, surrounding uh, conditions uh, c constituted a, a force that would create a replacement part, regeneration, according to the place in the field rather than uh, to what it had done up to that moment. Okay. So the, the idea of genes uh, reading out as if from a, a blueprint <laughs> mechanically uh, was clearly uh, disproved right. by the embryologists. Mm -hmm. But that whole idea of a, a morphogenic or morphogenetic <clears throat> developmental field uh, <clears throat> disappeared about 1960. Uh, the last uh, advocates retired uh, between 1950 and 1960. Okay, so you think that a lot of the... Um a lot of the change uh, or a lot of the stagnation was brought around by uh, vested interests in medicine and guiding that uh, guiding the dogma of genetics to produce a uh, for want of a better word a kind of a controllable um, scenario where drugs can be introduced specific uh, targeted at specific uh, uh, proteins for example um, yeah the the um idea that genes create a disease uh, if you can't uh, find a drug that will neutralize that uh, gene's product uh, then you have something to blame it on and mm -hmm. explain why the doctors are powerless uh, that it's it's incurable if it's genetic unless the drug companies uh, can come up with something to alleviate the symptoms mm -hmm. Uh, but uh, the uh, the actual evidence of how uh, genes relate to uh, uh, health uh, it, it, it's uh, really just a, a complete uh, fantasy. The, the idea of a gene uh, by uh, 
the 1930s to 1960s, it, it was recognized as a metaphysical construct, even less uh, based on evidence than the idea of a field, even though they didn't know exactly what the elements of the field were, they could demonstrate it. But the gene idea was uh, simply an abstraction uh, until uh, they applied the abstraction to the idea that there were uh, certain stretches of DNA that they began calling a gene. Uh, but uh, even that, the, the definition of a gene has been uh, changing uh, uh, even since the uh, recognition of DNA as a, a component of inheritance. So was this, did they want to tell us that, you know, if, if they can't help us because there's no drug to help that disease and then they wanted to say, oh, well, then it's just a genetic disease. It takes the power out of the person to help themselves. If they have a genetic disease, people think, well, there's nothing I can do about it. Right. That's the common way of thinking about it. So was that part of the motivation, or do you think that was a subconscious um, um, uh, no, it, byproduct? It a very conscious ideology. Uh, Conrad Lorenz, who won the Nobel Prize, uh, was a hero of uh, practically all of the professors that I knew, uh, even into the, the 70s. Uh, and he was a Nazi who um, designed his uh, uh, idea that genes control behavior uh, specifically for Hitler's Institute of Racial Hygiene as an excuse for killing uh, people mm -hmm. who didn't have the, the behavioral traits that uh, they thought were appropriate. So that it justified political and religious uh, killings uh, where the American view of eugenics had been mostly to, to sterilize. Uh, uh, sometimes they would uh, euthanize babies, uh, but uh, mostly it was uh, used to sterilize people they considered uh, right. defective. Yeah. Um, th that political idea of uh, uh, genetics uh, derived right from a uh, the end of the 19th century, uh, Mendel and August Weissmann uh, were uh, consciously uh, trying to uh, destroy the Darwinian or Lamarckian ideas that uh, the environment might be able to improve the intelligence of poor people. Okay. Uh, <laughs> they wanted to um, have uh, an absolute determinism that uh, people of uh, lower intelligence uh, were simply uh, permanently, uh, their children would inherit their traits and so on. So at the worst, they could be killed or sterilized, but uh, uh, it, it was um, used to justify everything in society, not just uh, particular sickness. Um, for example, it was applied to the idea of uh, toxemia of pregnancy and that the uh, fetus was um, said to have a genetic defect which was poisoning the mother. Uh, but, of course, the fetus had inherited it from the parents.
and and so it it was um, denying that better diet could uh, uh, control or prevent uh, pregnancy complications because all of that was genetically determined. Mm. Um, the the um, Scopes trial in which William Jennings Bryan uh, argued against evolution, uh, he was basically against eugenics, which was justified uh, by the theory of, of a mechanical kind of evolution. Okay. Um, you're listening to Ask Your Herb Doctor on KMUD Garbable 91.1 FM, and from 7.30 until the end of the show at 8 o'clock, you're invited to call in with any questions either related or unrelated to this month's subject of genetics versus the environment, the predisposition to disease. Uh, we're very pleased to have Dr. Raymond Peet to share his uh, expertise on this subject. And um, Dr. Peet, I was going to ask you next, what, um, how much, how much then, then genetics, how much do they affect the organism? If, if we're told by medical people and scientists per se that genetics are all pervasive as the cause What's your, what's, your, what's your take on how much genetics affect the organism? Uh, there are several um, diseases or conditions that are, are distinctly controlled uh, by uh, particular genes. Uh, uh, the type of, of dwarfism in, in which the bones don't develop, mm -hmm. uh, there is a definite gene mutation involved, but that doesn't uh, say that the environment hasn't uh, created, created it, right. that mutation mm -hmm. uh, in, in a particular uh, controllable way. Uh, and uh, one way of, of looking at uh, genetic uniqueness is that uh, every organism requires a certain environment. Uh, a frog can't live uh, in the same place an eagle can live. Mm -hmm. Every organism needs exactly the right kind of environment, mm. and uh, certain genes make you need more things from the environment. Uh, but uh, even uh, the genes that uh, limit you, uh, they can create a stress reaction, and the stress reaction can lead to changes in the genes. Right. Uh, and uh, uh, this. The evidence has been accumulating now uh, in um, American universities, Australian, uh, uh, among uh, very well-known researchers. They've um, demonstrated that uh, stress can produce directional changes in microorganisms uh, uh, using mechanisms similar to what uh, Barbara McClintock recognized in in corn uh, mobile genetic elements that uh, move around under stress and and accelerate the ability to adapt so our environment is constantly having an effect upon our DNA and our DNA and our cells are constantly sensing a change in environment um yeah James Shapiro uh, who um, was one of the people that discovered that bacteria can adapt to uh, resist penicillin or antibiotics and that they can pass on that acquired resistance to their descendants or to 
uh, other bacteria that they uh, interact with. Uh, so it can be transmitted hmm. both genetically and horizontally uh, as an acquired trait. Uh, and uh, Shapiro calls this uh, natural genetic engineering in which the organism is adjusting its its own mm-hmm. inheritance to uh, improve its survival. Okay, so I guess let's go on to uh, some diseases perhaps that um, are considered genetic by today's uh, scientific thinking, which are probably more environmental. Um, I know that things like the uh, prion diseases and... Uh, Huntington's Korea. Well, uh, yeah, those are are considered um, degenerative diseases as well as, as uh, <laughs> genetic. Um, and uh, the fact that, for example, Huntington's disease uh, typically uh, becomes uh, apparent as a problem when the person is maybe 40 years old. Uh, they were perfectly healthy, or even uh, some people have said that they were healthier than average up until <laughs> the disease set in at the age of 35 or 40 or 45. And uh, when you look at the specific gene that they're talking about, uh, in the case of Huntington's chorea, it's a, a, a protein that gets a, an extra inserted stretch of glutamine uh, residues okay. and uh, uh, this can change generation after generation so that uh, the the victim's offspring can uh, develop it years earlier than the parent and it can uh, change quickly from generation to generation indicating that that something is uh, actively contributing to the the Mm -hmm. mutation but the folding doesn't become a problem you can have the gene for 40 years with no health problem at all and what's known to uh, activate the uh, the folding problem that creates the symptoms these are environmental things that have been accumulating Mm -hmm. over the decades of ordinary living Mm -hmm. and uh, uh, these features are, are now coming to be identified. For example, uh, the, the um, unsaturated fatty acids uh, cause misfolding of the prions in uh, uh, CJD mm-hmm. and um, mad cow disease, right. uh, radiation, and the, uh, the polyunsaturated fatty acids are known to accelerate the the, the misfolding of the protein, making it uh, act like an infectious thing that spreads from one cell to the next. Uh-huh. And uh, Parkinson's disease and Alzheimer's, similar folding of proteins uh, cause the symptoms. And uh, the factors that cause that misfolding are now being identified as environmental dietary factors. And weren't you saying that even in the test tube when they add omega-6 oils to these proteins, they, it encourages or it stimulates yeah. the misfolding and the, the misshapen um, to occur? Yeah, that's, that's been done with uh, prions. 
in the old prion-related diseases, and uh, in Parkinson's disease, the protein is called alpha-synuclein, and uh, the uh, DHA long chain, uh, highly unsaturated fatty acid, is known to induce the misfolding, and saturated fatty acids can block the misfolding. Uh, so uh, the evidence is, is now looking uh, like it's related to an aging process, since with aging the brain accumulates more and more DHA, especially under the influence of estrogen. Women mm -hmm. accumulate uh, more DHEA, circulate more of it in the blood, and uh, very uh, typically uh, with the degenerative inflammatory diseases, uh, women uh, are more susceptible than men uh, to, to several of the diseases. And DHA is um, one of the omega oils that they tout as being so anti-inflammatory and so good for women, when uh, DHA and EPA. But um, it's it's what you're what you're saying is that it actually works in conjunction with estrogen to be very um, destructive. Um, yeah, it does several things. It breaks down and uh, forms, for example, acrolein, mm -hmm. which is a very reactive mm -hmm. uh, fragment that attaches to, um, for example, the tau protein that, that is involved in the, the filament formation in Alzheimer's disease. And um, DHA uh, activates the excitotoxic process. It increases the glutamate uh, excitatory system, uh, increasing the free uh, glutamic acid uh, in the, the brain fluid, and uh, in these, all of these brain degenerative diseases, you can see increased uh, breakdown products of, of basically the fish oil type of polyunsaturated fats in the cerebrospinal fluid, and in many cases in the other body fluids, serum and such. So that the um, everything from the short acrolein up to the larger prostaglandin-like uh, breakdown products of the polyunsaturated that are called isoprostanes and neuroprostanes. Uh, these show up increasingly uh, with age and with dementia. So as a newborn infant, their brains have very little um, DHA, DHA and EPA. Uh, yeah, because their uh, fats have been synthesized by their own bodies uh, made from um, mostly from glucose absorbed from the mother and uh, the animal body can produce uh, saturated fats and monounsaturated like oleic acid and our own series that are called the omega minus nine uh, series of unsaturated fats and uh, at birth uh, these are the dominant fats in the baby's brain and animal studies going back 30 or 40 years showed that if you feed pregnant animals a large amount of polyunsaturated fats their babies are born with smaller brains and don't learn as well and uh, a group in France two or three years ago uh, basing their thinking on the uh, addition of, of these 
fish oil type fats to uh, baby formulas, uh, they were uh, looking at that argument that uh, the brain is is made of these, and so uh, they should help brain development. So they fed some pregnant women uh, a high polyunsaturated fat diet, hoping that they could demonstrate increased learning of the fetus by uh, uh, presenting sounds to the uh, developing fetus and watching the, the learning reaction. And they found that their learning was retarded uh, in the presence of the omega-3 fatty diet to the mother, uh, just in line with what the animal studies had shown. So did they think that these oils were um, useful for the brain of the of, for the baby's brain because they did autopsies on adults and found that the the brains had a lot of these oils in them. I mean, is that yeah, what they, they based it on? They they said um, your brain is full of fish oil, so it must be good for the brain. But <laughs> looking at a baby's brain, it doesn't have it, any. It, yeah, it's very low in in babies. Well, maybe it's they were looking your... at Alzheimer brains. <laughs> um, yeah, exactly the. Uh, the more demanded uh, not only Alzheimer's but the other uh, brain degenerative uh, diseases and old brains in general have more than young brains. Okay, you're listening to Ask Your Ab Doctor on KMUD Garbaville 91.1 FM. From 7.30, which is right around now, until the close of the show at 8 o'clock, uh, callers are invited to uh, pose questions, either related or unrelated to this month's subject of genetics versus environmental predisposition to disease. Our guest speaker is Dr. Raymond Pete, and um, the lines will be open till 8 o'clock. Sarah, did you? Oh, I think there's a caller, actually. So <laughs> let's take this next caller. Hello? Hi, you're on the air. Uh, hello, this is... Um First of all, I just want to thank I want to thank Andrew, Sarah, and Dr. P for these shows. Um, I, I try to tune in every month because I, I learn a lot and I appreciate it. I'm actually the person who said I'm actually the person who suggested this show, and I, I really appreciate you doing this topic. It's something that's always interested me because I mean I've seen several doctors, and I've never had a doctor ask me like what do I eat, what my diet is. Yet I've always had a doctor give me like weird looks when I told him that both my grandfathers died from type 2 diabetes, and somehow it seems like now I'm, I'm destined to that. There's, there's, no, there's no way that I can go about it. You know, it's just a matter of time. Hmm. It's, just, it's, kind of, it's kind of weird to, uh, to kind of think of it in that way. And um, I guess... Hello, you there? We lost yeah, it. yeah, sorry. Oh. I, I guess my, my question to Dr. P would be that I had an argument with one of my professors in, in the university a couple of semesters back, and he basically said that there was a lot of evidence for the genetics. And, and one of the things he cited was there was a lot of studies, I guess, from twins that were separated at birth, and I guess they reconciled 40, 50 years later, and they did different measurements and stuff. And I was wondering how, how much of that would actually be genetic and how much of that could it be the, the shared intrauterine environment during the nine months of gestation? Um, uh, that's... Basically, my uh, uh, an argument I've been making for a long time. And, um, there was a, a genetically oriented argument of, for the idea that working class people would never uh, rise to the middle class because of genetic influence uh, on their intelligence. And I pointed out the evidence 
of the intrauterine environment and nutrition. And uh, the um, art article that, that I was criticizing, uh, I think it was 11 pages, and the conclusions didn't even uh, relate to the evidence they had presented, but the editors, uh, to instead of just rejecting my two-sentence rebuttal, uh, sent it to reviewers to get their uh, uh, support for rejecting it. And the only evidence they cited happened to come from Hitler's Institute for Racial Hygiene. Oh my goodness. Um, the, the evidence from animal studies is, is really clear that the intrauterine environment, uh, the twins have a very similar uh, environment. Uh, they, they get basically the same nutrition. Uh, and uh, so uh, if, if the mother's health changes from pregnancy to pregnancy, the intelligence of the baby is going to be influenced according to what she was eating at the time. And animal studies show that this effect can be passed on for four generations at least. Uh, uh, studies of, of people who were starved during pregnancy in uh, Holland and Russia, uh, not only were their babies uh, impaired mentally, but even their grandchildren uh, showed impairment uh, as a result of the conditions uh, affecting the brain, the hormones, the whole physiology. Uh, so it's, it's inherited, but it's purely a physiological environmental thing that if they had a super supportive environment, that could have been corrected and wouldn't be passed on from generation to generation. Or like if one... So, oh, sorry, go ahead, caller. Oh, um, yeah. I was just wondering, so um, would, would that, uh, the mother's nutrition during gestation, would that also explain that, 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 that huge variance that you see among people that in the way that they can tolerate a, a poor nutritional diet? I mean, or, I mean what, what, what part does genes play into that? Because you can see different people eating a, a, a poorly nutritional diet, and yet some people suffer more than others. Is that also because of the, the, the hormonal reserves that they have, because maybe their, their mother's diet was, was better than somebody else's? I mean, um, I, I don't know if I... Yeah, um, 30 or 40 years ago, doctors were talking about the thrifty gene that caused some families to um, get fat on very little food. But uh, that's undoubtedly another example of the same kind of, of inheritance by gestational influence. Um, if you're uh, starving, the, the fetus adjusts to a very poor diet and becomes thrifty. Uh, they've never identified a thrifty gene or a, a gene for diabetes, uh, but people go on talking about a gene for obesity and for, for diabetes. Uh, when the country of Israel was uh, formed, uh, lots of immigrants came in from other parts of Africa and um, as well as from Europe. The Europeans uh, had a very high, typically European rate of diabetes, uh, but the 
immigrants from poor countries had almost no diabetes when they immigrated. So the first generation, uh, only the Europeans were diabetic. But after a second generation of of living on a a relatively abundant European style of eating, uh, the immigrants' children were developing diabetes at the same rate as the European immigrants, uh, totally destroying the idea of of genetic diabetes. Yeah, but the the natural dogma is that would probably say that it's because of the the mixing and the interaction of the genes among among the people. Well, no, they were were interbreeding. The the immigrants didn't mix with the Europeans. Oh, okay. Interesting. Okay, we have another caller. If you have any more questions, caller, go ahead. Uh, no, no, no. Thank you very much for everything you guys do. It, it, it's great that, you, that this is being shared because it's in, the dogma that's going on, it just it lets people think that they have, that they, it doesn't matter what they eat or what they do, they just, yeah, I mean, I appreciate it, and I know a lot of people do, so thank you very much. Yeah. Well, we appreciate your suggestion welcome. for a uh, topic, and yeah. thank, thank you for your call. Thank you. Okay, there's another caller on there. Hey, thank you so much. Uh, I wanted to ask Dr. Pete. Um, I've been told I have cystic fibrosis and have uh, tested positive, I guess, for, on the chloride sweat test uh, a couple of different occasions. Um, and uh, I've also been told that this is some sort of a malfunction in a sodium transport mechanism, and I'm wondering whether he can enlighten myself uh, as to the veracity of any of this or anything that you might be able to shed light on in this, this situation. For a long time I've been interested in the mechanism of sodium transport and uh, I've suspected that hypothyroidism is uh, sometimes misunderstood and uh, a diagnosis of cystic fibrosis is made. Uh, when I worked in the woods uh, the first summer, we had a, a cook who was a fanatic for uh, believing that if you worked hard and sweated a lot, you needed uh, salt replacement. So he would put, uh, I think it was something like a tablespoon of salt in everyone's breakfast. And if you didn't eat your porridge that was horribly salty, uh, you didn't get the rest of your breakfast. And uh, within a few days, Uh, I was tending to faint if I didn't take salt pills halfway through the day. And my skin was so salty that I got crystals of salt on my forehead, eyebrows, glasses. Uh, uh, It was actually just um, crystallizing pure sodium chloride. And I for sure would have... um, been considered to have uh, cystic fibrosis from the the chloride uh, coming out of my skin. Um, But it was simply an an adaptation to uh, my particular kind of thyroid metabolism and an extremely high uh, salt intake. Dr. Pete, do you have any any suggestions that that would be uh, relevant to uh, somebody with cystic fibrosis? in terms of uh, the main things at which uh, in environmentally could be changed? or uh... um, Yeah, I think they should uh, examine their thyroid function very thoroughly, including uh, 
measurements of their carbon dioxide uh, bicarbonate in the blood and exhaled carbon dioxide in the end of their exhalation uh, because carbon dioxide is what actually uh, regulates uh, the movement of sodium and other minerals. Okay. So a comprehensive metabolic panel would show the carbon dioxide in the blood, but are you saying there's other tests you could do? Bicarbonate. Um, there um, probably the um, if you look with a suspicion of hypothyroidism and endocrine involvement, uh, I think you'll probably uh, most likely find the answer in that. Thank you. You're very good. Thank you so very much, Dr. Pete. Thank you for your call. Thank you for your call. Okay, uh, we've got a couple more callers on the line, so let's take the next caller. Hey, are you talking to me? Yes, you're on the air. Okay. Could, um, you, uh, could you turn the background music down? <laughs> the it's background, not background music. These are the loud people that are also in the house where I am right now. Oh, Sorry. Okay. Um, I can't turn them down. Um, but I was also disconnected for a minute, so I don't know what you guys were just talking about. But I heard you talking about carbon dioxide, and I think in this context it's interesting to take note of the fact that um, shamans, like in this country and in South America, use tobacco to connect with plants, and plants want carbon dioxide. We want oxygen from them. So when you're blowing that tobacco smoke on the plant, it's actually like a like chemical exchange that's happening there. It makes genetic sense, too. But um, beyond this, really what I was calling about is because really I just wanted to say that you made a mention of field theory before versus like the concept of a gene. And I think integrating field theory back into our understanding about these things would do a whole world of change. Like realizing that like your genetic code is really more like a field frequency that you can willfully affect. That's like integrating holistic medicine that works like energetically with like your diet and stuff, like operating on both levels. like working your own kundalini flow, working that along with, like, matching it up with your diet and proper herb intake, knowing all of these things. But really, like, the field theory concept is what makes way more sense. You can have an effect. Yeah. It's a shame that that was the theory for the first half of, you know, for the first 50 years of this century, and it didn't seem to carry on. But the fact of the matter is, is that it's not just matter. Field theory is what makes more sense. Like science has got a little confused. That's my opinion. Mm -hmm. It's re reductionist thinking versus uh, more of a holistic. Precisely. Yeah. But really, where I'm coming from is saying that, like, what needs to happen is an integration of the two, mm -hmm. realizing both are operative. So it can be both, like, your genetic frequency, like your inherent field resonance having its effect. Like on you, regardless of what's going on around you, or alternatively, like the external environment, those fields affecting you. It can go both ways. But then the big factor here is that real, like to realize that you can have a willful effect on it. But those things are also debilitated by something like your chemistry. Like if you're not eating enough, then your ability to like emanate energy enough to not be taken over by the energies all around you, like will be debilitated. Like I said. Okay. Yeah. No, that's that's totally right on. So that's all my battling. Yeah, no more noise for you all. I appreciate your call. Thank, <laughs> Thank you. you. Okay, we've, we've got three more callers on the line, so let's take the next caller. Hello? You're on the air. Hi. Um, my question for Dr. P was about, um, you've mentioned before on the show about hypothyroidism and the, the downward spiral, I guess. 
that it can lead to high estrogen and then high stress hormone, low thyroid, low progesterone. Yeah. And um, he mentioned supplemental desiccated thyroid to get out of that cycle. And I guess I'm just wondering, is that something that can work in the short term, like a few months, and you would get yourself out of that cycle? Or is that something you would have to continue for the rest of your life? Cause um, it would um, replace your natural thyroid. Um, I've seen a, a few people who needed it just for a few days, and it broke a stress cycle. And there have been published cases like that. Uh, but if your body is uh, loaded with polyunsaturated fats, uh, every time you get hungry, uh, these come into your bloodstream and interfere with the thyroid function. Uh, so uh, the average person who is um, hypothyroid, uh, maybe at, at the age of 20 or 30, uh, their body is so well saturated with the anti-thyroid agents that it takes a couple of years of uh, fairly uh, strict diet before they can uh, get along without thyroid. Okay, and, and would the same thing go for, um, if the problem with that was low progesterone, would the same thing happen there with some people needing only um, a few doses, I guess, and it could get them out of that cycle? Um, that's much more uh, frequent than the uh, quick response to thyroid. I, I've seen I, I suppose two or three hundred women who uh, just needed one or a few doses of progesterone to get out of the, the cycle and, and get going uh, on their own without needing a supplement. So I've, I've always resisted the idea of talking about hormone replacement, but uh, very often, uh, for example, one woman who since puberty had been uh, very white-skinned with purple lips. Uh, it was just apparently her nature. Uh, she put some progesterone on her hand, and uh, I was explaining how it's absorbed through the skin. Uh, a little later, uh, she telephoned and said as she was leaving the house, she felt something happening. And when she got home, she looked in the mirror, and her cheeks were pink, and her lips were red instead of purple. And uh, weeks after that, when she visited her parents, the first thing they said was, what happened to, to your color change? <laughs> uh, it, it had existed for um, about 18 years at that point, and in just minutes, the progesterone apparently permanently changed her physiology, just one dose. Wow. All right, well, thanks for that. Thank you for your call, caller. Okay, there's, I think there's two more callers on the line, so let's take the next caller. Hi, Dr. Pete. Hi. A um, couple of questions. Uh, first one in relation to the earlier part of your show. I saw a report, I think it was on KPIX out of San Francisco within the last six months, one of the major affiliates, though, and it was about eugenics in the U.S., where there was a hospital in Sonoma, so-called hospital, where they took people whose parents may have been um, considered misfit for being tardy to school or may have been involved in what was interpreted as prostitution, and they sterilized the kids. 
And in this report, they said that Hitler actually used that as a model, this, this uh, hospital in Sonoma, for what he did that was even more evil, of course, than that. Bad enough what they did here in the state of California for these young people whose fault it was none of theirs, what their parents had done. And, uh, or, or if it was on their own, they were late for school and considered uh, misfit for society and didn't want those traits to move on and sterilize them. But uh, I wondered if you had heard anything uh, in what you had discussed earlier that was related to that school um, and our hospital in Sonoma. Uh, not that particular hospital. I've, I've seen it mentioned, but there were uh, several hospitals doing that in the U.S. in the 1920s, and American geneticists were the model for Hitler's uh, eugenics program. Uh, yeah. That's fairly well known. And yeah, it's the, 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 the American Journal uh, was called Annals of Eugenics, and uh, it kept that name until 1954. And uh, another journal uh, was the um, Quarterly of Eugenics, and, and they kept that name until 1969. And public uh, recognition of, of their role in Hitler's uh, sterilization and murder campaigns uh, finally caused them to change their name. Um, well, and it makes one wonder if tendrils of that don't exist to this day with what Congress, uh, especially the Republican Party, seems to be doing. And I'm not trying to blame either party here because I think they're all at fault, but uh, uh, we see some of the stuff going on where they're uh, taking that young college student who was a, a law student and then what rash lame brain or crush blah blah or whatever that uh, squawk show host's name is that uh, really got what he deserved for saying that. My, my other question is completely unrelated to that. As you know, we're having an eclipse which enters, uh, makes landfall in Humboldt County um, at uh, a little after 5 on Sunday, May 20th, and it peaked between 624 and about 632, 634. And uh, my question relates to if somebody does injure their eyes, and of course they should use the number 14 welder's glass or um, other approved observing uh, techniques which you can obtain at uh, telescope stores. But uh, if somebody does injure their eyes, is it possible to regenerate uh, any kind of uh, seeing with things such as beta carotene, vitamin K, and the like? Um, immediately uh, when the exposure has happened in the first hour, uh, red light, like uh, seeing light through your eyelids, uh, mm -hmm. can have a, a detoxifying effect on the uh, the heat damage. Uh, it, it has a partly a, it stimulates uh, circulation and uh, uh, lowers inflammation. Just to have a mild red light exposure, but uh, anti-inflammatory things, aspirin and vitamin E. Uh, uh, help to uh, stop inflammation from such injury. Yeah, I think, you know, even though people shouldn't do that, sometimes they do, and it's good to know preventatively what they might want to have on hand in case somebody kind of overdoes it. Well, I hope everyone enjoys that eclipse. It's a really wonderful, unique opportunity, and since Humboldt County honors the matriarch so well, and this eclipse is going over the arc of Humboldt County, I'm referring it through, I'm referring it uh, to it as the C-clip. I think that's appropriate here. 
Okay, thank you for your call, caller. We do have... All right, uh, thank you for the show. Bye-bye. Thank you. We do have two more callers, so let's see if we can squeeze them in. Next caller, you're on the air? Oh, hello. Um, I had two questions, and the first one is, could you explain how salt uh, affects the thyroid? How what affects it? Salt. Salt. Oh, um, well, it stimulates uh, cells to use oxygen, and uh, it works with thyroid to rev up the uh, oxidation of sugar, producing carbon dioxide. So it's like speeding the metabolism. Yeah. Oh, so so salt is okay. And so calcium. then, if you had an overactive thyroid, it would be best not to eat salt. Um, uh, no, uh, not necessarily because uh, your body should should govern your salt appetite. Uh, you'll not have a salt appetite if you aren't losing salt fast enough. I see. And the other question is, when you're talking about polyunsaturated oils, are you saying it's not good to eat nuts like almonds and walnuts? Uh, right. I think they're uh, major problems. Okay. Thank you. Okay. Thank you for your call, caller. Uh, do we have any more? Yeah. Okay. Let's keep going with the next caller. Hello? You're on the air? Okay. Thank you. Uh, well, what I'm wondering is... Uh, Have you, uh, when I tuned into the show, you were talking about uh, how bacteria inherit uh, resistance to antibiotics, I believe, uh, both horizontally and vertically, uh, which suggests uh, inheriting, uh, in, inheriting acquired uh, characteristics. And so I'm wondering uh, if you could comment on how that might uh, refer uh, or impact on uh Let's say uh, the work that uh, Lamarck did in uh, in his uh, studies of inheriting uh, acquired uh, characteristics. Um, well, uh, Charles Darwin was actually not an antagonist of Lamarck, and Darwin's grandfather was a Lamarckian, and uh, Darwin got his basic ideas from his grandfather, who was really a Lamarckian, and in uh, the introduction to one of the editions of, of uh, The Descent of Man, uh, he made several points that he was not uh, saying that uh, it's just a, a matter of the inheritance of uh, randomly mutated genes. He, he pointed out several other mechanisms of inheritance, but uh, the anti-Darwinians uh, were actually anti-evolutionists uh, who didn't uh, like the idea that organisms could have a purpose or could be intelligent and uh, respond reasonably to the environment in a way that could be passed on to their offspring. Uh, so it, the anti-Lamarckism was really associated with anti-true Darwinism and uh, was a creation of, of late 19th century uh, anti-evolutionists uh, who, who became the, the, the basis for the neo-Darwinist movement, which is what suppressed this idea of a purposeful developmental field 
as as being what is in charge of uh, both expressing and organizing uh, the genes. Okay, so all of this, all of this enunciation of Lamarck, uh, I'm, I'm I'm really thinking about this from uh, having read Arthur Kessler's book, The Case of the Midwife Code, and so all this suppression of Lamarck's work and his ideas is uh, you're saying is really dogmatic rather than real. Uh, dogmatic and uh, even to the point of being irrational and unscientific. Um, it, it just makes no sense in things like Mendelian inheritance in man. It, it's just uh, like a, a, a cultish doctrine that, that doesn't have any basis anywhere. Okay, okay, great. Well, that's really good uh, to hear. That's really good to hear. That's what I've been thinking, that you know, the scientific community is not there. So thank you very much. <clears throat> thank you, Paula. <laughs> Okay, well, we better not take any more callers. We've just got a few more minutes here till we reach the top of the hour. I just wanted very briefly uh, to quickly ask you, Dr. Pete, maybe in a minute or two, so we can uh, let people know more about you. Uh, the, um, I read a, uh, a paragraph in your late, latest newsletter on information that uh, Zyacek had done experiments revealing a cell streaming in tissues, normally thought of as static, and you brought out the uh, example where he'd shown evidence that um, a similar transformation of function occurs in the pancreas with the acyna cells that normally um, produce the uh, digestive enzyme or pro Yeah, yeah the pancreas, like other tissues, cells. is constantly regenerating, and it's, it's just our bad, uh, dangerous fats in the diet that is constantly killing off the, the insulin-secreting cells. Mm -hmm. So, so it's just possible to, to re regain insulin secreting cells that's that was the uh that's basically what Zycheck's um yeah. research was showing right dr pete um yeah the, the organism is in very vigorous replacement everywhere all the parts are uh, turning over and uh, in a very organized meaningful way uh doing its best to uh, renew everything including uh the things that are associated with diseases such as lack of insulin. And just for our listeners to wrap up here, for these oils that um, Zycheck showed were harming the uh, cells in the pancreas, basically polyunsaturated oils, if I can lump it all together, include every vegetable oil apart from olive oil, coconut oil, and uh, animal fat such as butter, beef, lamb, fat, and any fat from a ruminant animal. Okay, for those people that have uh, enjoyed tonight's show and Dr. Pete, as always, bringing his intelligent, scientific approach to seeing it differently, or seeing it how it really is, uh, his website is www.raypeat.com and there are lots of fully referenced articles on many uniquely different approaches to regaining your health and he can be contacted there also. So thanks so much, Dr. Pete, for joining us again. It's invaluable information and we really appreciate it. Oh, okay, thanks. Thank you for your time, and thank you, callers, for all your questions yeah. and calls. Until next solstice.
and support for KMUD comes in part from Golden Dragon Medicinal Syrup, an anti-inflammatory, antifungal, antibacterial, antioxidant medicine made without heat or ice. Golden Dragon Medicinal Syrup is organic, edible, topical, cosmetic, and water-soluble. Information is available at goldendragonmedicinalsyrup at gmail.com and by phone at 707-223-1569. It is 8 o'clock, 65 degrees outside. This is Redwood Community Radio, KMUD Garberville, 91.1 FM, KMUE Eureka Arcata, 88.1 Please remember that this program is supported by the listener members of Redwood Community Radio, If you like what you hear, please consider becoming a member of KMUD or renewing if you've already joined. A regular yearly membership is $50, but we accept any amount. Help us keep free speech alive. 